Welcome to Light of the World. I am Pastor Alfonso Espinoza, St. Paul's Lutheran Church of Irvine, the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod. This podcast is a ministry of our congregation. We are so happy to share it with you. Please invite your friends to tune in on the various podcast platforms for Light of the World, always referring to our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. I am here with Tom Howard and with Megan Glozer and with Brad Perry, who is behind the scenes with audiovisual. And today we're continuing in our second series now, the second episode of this second series on the book, Faith That Engages the Culture. I had the privilege to write this for a Concordia Publishing House. It came out in 2021. It's part of a trilogy uh, with uh, Faith That Sees Through the Culture 2020, 2019, Faith That Engages the Culture 2021, and the book to be released later this year in 2023, Faith That Shines in the Culture. But this particular book, Faith That Engages the Culture, is about sharing the gospel with people and understanding that we don't have to be tied down to a script, as we were talking about in our last podcast. We don't have to succumb to fear or intimidation. Every single Christian who is also a royal priest, according to the Word of God in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, has the privilege and the Holy Spirit to have the ability to simply share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today, we're looking at chapter one of the book. Chapter one is within the first part of the book called Engagement Triangle Explained. And we explain that by beginning with the perspective of the Christian as they approach the prospect, the possibility, the opportunity to share the saving gospel. So the first thing we want to discuss here today, Tom and Megan, is we want to talk about this engagement perspective. And what we're getting at here in the first chapter is that we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we're going to follow God's word, God's plan, God's prescription to commit to using his word as we communicate with people. And one of the hallmarks of the Lutheran Christian faith and confession is that we know uh, beyond a shadow of a doubt that the word of God expresses two distinct themes or two words within the word of God. Um, and those two themes or two words uh, or messages is on the one hand, the law of God and the gospel of God. Now, we learn about that when we're uh, getting ready to be confirmed, you know, sometime between fifth and eighth grade, every good Lutheran knows that we have long gospel in God's word. As a matter of fact, uh, the Lutheran study Bible that's been out now for over, over a decade, which distribution isn't quite well, it's been well received in the church. Uh, the entire commentary system is based on law and gospel, seeing the law and gospel in various sections of Holy, Holy Scripture. But what we're trying to do today in this book, um, in application to our book and our discussion, is how does law and gospel play out in our conversations with people when we're sharing Jesus with them, when we're sharing the good news of the forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation? So this is the specific uh, emphasis here. Now, let's take a little time to explain simply what we mean by law and gospel. What is the law in the word of God and what is the gospel in the word of God? Who wants to get us started there? You know, I, I think we're all interested in just kind of getting to the crux and understanding what those two themes are all about. 
How might you explain that to someone who, who is asking, or maybe one of your students at the high school? Well, I, first of all, I'm, you know, we've talked about these two doctrines a few times now, and I think that's always important to go back to it, it right? It's the two fundamental doctrines in scripture. It's, it's the lens by which we see everything in scripture through, yeah. um, but it also provides uh, a guideline and a lens by which we see ourselves, we see people, uh, we see circumstances that we're put into. Um, and so, you know, without having to know every nook and cranny of scripture, which I think is very intimidating for Christians, feeling like maybe they need a PhD in theology to go be able to talk to people about Jesus, um, being able to, to come back to the foundational truths of these two doctrines um, is, is really, really helpful. And it's also, it's helpful because it simplifies uh, things. Not that these doctrines are simple, but it simplifies our approach and, and how we're looking at people. And so, you know, we all know the law and, uh, you know, that, that concept is, is burned into, you know, every human being's brain. We know what we're supposed to do. We know what we're not supposed to do. Um, we know the expectations, we know the standards. And um, unfortunately, it gets revealed to us too often that we, we don't know those, or we don't meet those standards. Uh, sometimes when it's not obvious to us that we don't meet those standards, we need somebody to tell us. We need to be reminded of that. Um, and uh, fortunately then, um, with that crushing reality, we get to hear the gospel, the saving message of salvation through Jesus Christ and his actions alone uh, that bring me um, eternal life with him, ultimately. Megan, I'd also like to hear from you regarding this, but before you do share, um, I, I did want to comment um, that I, I've always been fascinated um, with the fact that law and gospel, in a way, uh, in, uh, consistent with what you said, uh, is not simple in that it, um, it expresses and extends the, the the depth and the riches and the profundity of God's word. At the same time, it is also, I think, extraordinarily simple. Um, and, and this is one of the, the, the great characteristics of the word of God. Um, in reflecting God, the almighty, the infinite, the eternal, the word bears truth that even if we had a 10, even if we had 10 lifetimes on earth to live, we would never fully mine the depth of those of, of the meaning of God's word. But at the same time, there's a basic clarity as to what is essential to know while we're living on earth uh, that is quite straightforward and simple at the same time. Uh, Megan, what are your thoughts? Yeah, uh, I was just gonna talk about how we discuss it in class, right? The, the simple nature of it. So the law shows us our sin, right? It gives us that standard that you're talking about. And then the gospel shows us our savior. What's the good news? What has he done for? What has he done for us? And I think that's the same language they use in, you use in the in your book. Indeed. Um, but I think that's a really helpful way for students to kind of get at the crux of what the thing is. One of the things I love about what you reminded us of is the fact that we can offer the students a nice little monomic device because both answers start with the letter S. Now there's an example of simplicity, and that's not very profound, but the law shows us that. S word, which is sin, the terrible spiritual disease. And the gospel shows us that S word, which is sweet name of our savior, Jesus Christ, our savior, uh, the savior of the world, everyone's savior. I think that someone might ask the question, but 
is this just, is this just some kind of random starting point that, you know, I, I would start this whole discussion on law and gospel. I, I mean, why should that even guide our perspective and shape our perspective? What is it about the law and the gospel that people actually need? Why is it, why is it that which kind of gets to the crux as to leading us in a conversation or a dialogue to present to a person that, you know, with all that's going on in the world and all that you might, that might be on your mind or that you care about, the law is showing you, I mean, and this stands for anybody we're talking to, something that is really the most serious problem of humanity. And on the other hand, the gospel represents the greatest gift of God for your life that is it's just, I mean, it's, we can't even put it into words. It's just infinitesimally more valuable than any other resource or liking to man. Why is that? Why, why are these two things essential for the conversation? Just get real practical with people. What are your thoughts? Well, I think it's essential ultimately because it answers the question, why do I need Jesus? Uh, why do I need to believe this? Why is Jesus so important? Um, salvation, these concepts really become meaningless without uh, the recognition and realization that I'm in trouble, right? That uh, salvation means nothing if I don't need anything to be saved from. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's ultimately where this, where this leads us to and why it's, it's so fundamentally important and critical, I mean, ultimately. Yeah, I think people generally are looking to the to the order of the world, right? Um, we're trying to see what is systematic in the chaos that's surrounding us. Um, mm. And so when we're looking at law, like that's just another example of like a standard for the world, um, an ordering of what's going on. Mm. And then we can point back to what the gospel is. So these things that we want in our lives why do you want that? Mm -hmm. And can you actually obtain those things? I think it answers, it answers a lot of questions that people have about life and the world and themselves. Um, you know, humans have been searching, yeah. right, through history. And the greatest yeah. philosophers um, you know, that are, have been recorded throughout history have, have asked very similar questions, yeah. have dealt with very similar issues. Yeah. Why is this the way it is? Why yeah. am I the way I am? Why is the world the way it is? Yeah. Um, everyone has kind of looked at the world and said, something's not right here. Something's mm -hmm. wrong. There's something wrong with mm -hmm. you know, me, ultimately, to some degree. Mm -hmm. uh, there's something wrong with the world. There's something wrong with how people treat each other, uh, the state of being. And that brings a lot of questions. And so humans have been searching. These two doctrines bring us back to that sense of order and answers. Yeah. Uh, to that confusion and that chaos that we live in. That's really good. Um, thanks for bringing that up, Megan. I, I think that it's true um, that even though our culture kind of feels like we are affirming people to believe in whatever they want to believe and every belief system is equally as legitimate as any other. Um, and, you know, this is why there's so much emphasis put into uh, the importance, almost like an 11th commandment of the world, to accept and affirm whatever anyone thinks and believes about themselves. It sounds good. It, it sounds like a very 
uh, respectable thing to do, uh, something that is kind and considerate of others. But is it really when, when another, per when another person believes in something that could actually hurt them and we go along with it? And, and I'm not, we're not at all in any way, shape or form suggesting that Christians should be the, um, you know, the morality police or that we should get in the habit of looking over people's shoulders so as to look down upon them when we discover something unsavory or not right. But to truly love someone is to care about their safety, is to care about their life. And if we see them going in a direction, um, either because of a fundamental belief system that could lead them into trouble or in behavioral, a behavioral lifestyle that could lead them into danger, we would be unloving not to express some concern. Um, and what God does with the law is give us the ultimate example of showing love and concern to say, the reason I'm giving you my law is so that you would become aware of this terrible problem called sin. Now, I, I, I think that where this challenges us a little bit is that the world, when, when the popular idea of sin is put before us, it's not necessarily what we have emphasized in the word of God. How, how would you compare the two versions, if you will, of sin and why uh, it's kind of a problem if we go along with the confusion? Well, you distinguished in chapter one the difference between sins and sin. And I think that's a, a super critical a distinction. Um, we can kind of look at sin being just my behavior and just what I do um, when that can easily be argued against that, you know, based on whoever standards you're talking about, yeah. what's wrong with my behavior, what's wrong with my choices, my decisions, my lifestyle, whatever it may be, mm -hmm. um, what's wrong with that? Um, and so it begs the question that we need some kind of a standard, mm -hmm. right, to go off of, uh, which is why I think, again, human beings show their hand. Right. Um, when we say, it sounds great to say everybody can live however they want, everybody's free to do whatever they want and live however they want, but you should care about the environment. Right. Well, now all of a sudden we've just shown our true color, so to speak, and the, mm -hmm. that we do believe in a very real right and a very real wrong, uh, that there is some type of standard mm -hmm. and uh, that somehow you're violating or, or the world's violating. And so what I think that points to is that it goes beyond just what we do, but a real deep sense that there is a very real right and we're not meeting it. And then of course, hopefully we rec recognize in ourselves, I'm not meeting it uh, as well. But I think the, the difference between sin uh, as a condition and sins, the outcome or the product of that condition. Uh, when somebody's sick, um, right, they might have cancer um, and they're throwing up a bunch of times. Well, the, pro the goal is not to just get them to not you know, stop throwing up. The goal is to cure the cancer. That's the issue. Um, you know, that getting sick is a, is, is a byproduct of that. And so that distinction I, I thought is really, really critical that you, you know, cover in chapter one. 
Yeah, it sounds like yeah. this idea uh, or the distinction between like brokenness and then the result of that brokenness. Yeah. Right. And I think even in uh, the example that you just gave with uh, the person who kind of says like, oh, well, we can do whatever we want, except yeah. you need to help the environment. Right. Yeah. That person has usually right in like conversations been yeah. hurt by some sort of thing, some sort of opposed law or whatever it is taken to some extreme. And now they're saying, well, I don't want anything to do with that. I haven't been loved properly. I've, I've been hurt by whoever's telling me this mm -hmm. and I'm going to go the other way, mm. except they ended up in some other law or some other standard without mm. realizing it. Yeah, we reject the law yeah. as the law being such a bad thing. Yeah, um, I think it's a great point with a lot of times because of how some type of law or the enforcement of that law has mm -hmm. burned me. So I want to live as if there are no laws. Yeah. Right. And it's that kind of oxymoron of there's you know there's what, what is it there's only one rule there mm -hmm. are no rules mm -hmm. right and mm -hmm. we, we see where that that contradicts itself and, and uh we we see in the scriptures by the way the illustration you gave about uh you know being sick and and and, and the cause of that sickness I, I think was a really good one it was very vivid when you when you use the particular examples that you did and I'm glad that I ate a couple hours ago. Um, but it, it really made the point that there really is a distinction, and both of you were bringing that out. And you're right about the fact that we wanna say there is just really one rule, that there is no, there are no rules. And this is what the scriptures bring out in the book of Judges. I, I mentioned this on page 13. This is Judges 17.6 and Judges 21.25. The word of God says, Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And yet at the same time, there's always kind of an inherent contradiction going on. Um, a friend of mine tells a story. No, actually, it was, it, was, it, was, it was in a book I read. Um, the story of uh, someone sharing, a, I have to correct myself again, it was a professor at Biola who told the story. I'll get it right eventually was telling the story about talking to a friend who wanted to say that morality was simply a social construct, um, that there is no objective basis to, to morality whatsoever. We are, we are in a position, and we should face it, that we are complete and total relativists. There is no such thing as right or wrong. To which my professor said he stood up uh, while he was talking to his friend in his apartment, in his friend's apartment, um, he, he sat up from his friend's chair who had just told him about his position on there being no morality or right or wrong. He stood up from the chair, walked away from him. The friend was wondering, what is he doing? As he walked right up to his, um, his audio system. And he starts to, he starts to dismantle components and his friend says, what are you doing? And he said, well, you just said there's no such thing as right or wrong, and I really like your system, so I'm gonna take it with me. And of course, immediately the friend who had just finished expressing his view started to object to this. So, so even though he expressed this position of no such thing as right or wrong, inherently, intrinsically, he was proving that he was wrong because it was wrong for his friend to just take off with the stuff. We see this all the time, but 
in making this distinction that we have made, and thank you for making it very effectively, and, and technically speaking in the realm of theology, sacred theology, we call this the difference between original sin or core sin, and as opposed to what springs from it called actual sin or actual sins. Um, let me pause there just to give you a scripture where Jesus himself brings out the distinction that it's extremely important for Christians to be aware of. This is Matthew chapter 15 in God's word, Matthew 15. And uh, here we have um, Jesus is speaking on clean and unclean. It starts off at verse one saying, then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. And Jesus goes on to say, uh, he replies, and why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother that whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is now a gift devoted to God, he is not to honor his father with it. Thus, you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. Jesus called to the crowd and said, listen and understand. What goes into a man's mouth does not make him unclean. But what comes out of his mouth, that is what makes him unclean. Then the disciples came to him and they asked, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard you say this? And Jesus replied, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them, they're blind guides. If a blind man leads a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Peter said, explain the parable to us. And here's the crux. Are you still so dull? Jesus asked them. Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart, and these make the man unclean. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These, these are what make a man unclean. But eating with unwashed hands does not make him unclean. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. Here, Jesus is teaching very clearly the preoccupation, essentially, what, what I'll, I'll, I will dub this as the preoccupation with the external. Instead of understanding the importance and the priority of the internal. So 
this makes for an interesting situation because we're not saying that the worldly perspective is necessarily all wrong, which shouldn't surprise us because Satan is an expert in half-truths. What we are saying is it is an improper emphasis to get caught up in behavior. Because what the scriptures are saying, the emphasis should be the condition of a person's heart or the condition of a person's spirit. So if we are taking the scriptures and the Lord Jesus's counsel seriously, how should we apply this in our conversation with people who need to know the gospel? How, how, would, how would you apply it in terms of demonstrating that it's, it's not about necessarily ignoring external signs of not knowing the gospel on the one hand, but on the other hand, certainly not obsessing about those things and making it all about what we're, what we're doing. Well, what we're doing again, requires a standard. Yeah. And so your standard might be different than mine. And so we might look at things and say, well, I think that behavior is okay. Another person says, ah, I don't think that behavior is very good. Um, but I don't, I, it doesn't really get to, to the heart of it. Right? So humanity has kind of two, fundamentally different premises by which we start about who we are as humans, right? Either yeah. I am fundamentally at my core good, mm. who then just choose to do some bad things, which mm -hmm. begs a lot of questions. What makes those things bad? Why would I do bad things? Who determines that they're bad? Mm. If, I'm such, I'm so, if I'm so fundamentally good at my core, why am I doing these bad things? Right. Or the Christian narrative, which is a lot tougher to take, um, but I believe it explains it better mm -hmm. is that at my core, I'm, I'm not good, mm. right? That I am sinful and unclean, that mm -hmm. I have selfish tendencies. Um, I'm at my core selfish and a lot of other things. And that explains the bad things that I do. Um, so rather than kind of harping on behaviors, yeah. I think where a lot of human beings, we, we can take that to that different level and say, why is this happening? Yes. Why would human beings do that? Treat other human beings, the, you know, in that way. Why would? Why did I do the thing that I did that I'm? I'm still carrying around guilt and shame yeah. over. Why am I? Why did I do that? How did yeah. I ever get to that place? Yeah. Um, and so we can start seeing these symptoms, um, kind of manifest itself, um, or or what people say, kind of reveals the fact that there's a deeper problem going on than just. Well, you're doing something that I don't like, which goes back to your analogy with the stereo, which really all that one roommate w was mm -hmm. saying is, you know, hey, don't take my stuff. Why? You can't say that it's wrong. Mm -hmm. You can just say, I don't like it. Mm -hmm. Right? C.S. Lewis talks about this in Mere Christianity. Mm -hmm. But we can start digging deeper as to why are we the way we are? Why is humanity the way it is? Why is the world gone the way it's ha it has? Mm -hmm. The Christian narrative explains that. Mm -hmm. um, even though it's... It, you know, it says some things about myself that I may not want to acknowledge. Yeah, I just wanted to, I guess I was thinking about uh, this idea of like behaviors and how that often, the focus on behaviors leads us into the area of like legalism, right? Yeah. And like building fences around different things that you should or shouldn't do. Right. Um, I was also reminded as you're talking uh, about like, addicts right mm -hmm. we we approach those same things um mm -hmm. in the, that same that same manner mm -hmm. um right so like if they are uh 
doing a lot of drugs or mm. drinking a lot, the tendency for those around them is to start targeting the actions, mm. right? And mm -hmm. ultimately that doesn't, doesn't work, yeah. right? They have to go get help for whatever those whys are. Why am I drinking? Why yeah. am I going and doing a bunch of drugs? Why am yeah. I doing this in excess? Yeah. And in doing that work and looking at usually what's been done to them too, yeah. they can start to address the actual problems and then things. That's outstanding. That's a great analogy. That's a wonderful analogy. By the way, you mentioned Lewis and in, in Mere Christianity, he does talk about this, um, this law of uh, right and wrong, uh, this, this natural law. And the examples he uses there, well, one of them I thought was very effective is that regardless of where you go, um, any nation or country in, in the midst of, of battle or war will know uh, that if, uh, if, 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 a, if a comrade or a fellow soldier or a fellow Marine turns around and runs, that that's cowardice. And they would all know that that's wrong. It's this built-in awareness. If, if uh, one man uh, tries to go after another man's wife, regardless of the culture, we know that's wrong. And so he uses some very vivid things. But I love what you said, Megan, this analogy is fantastic. I think you're right. Uh, the, the addiction analogy is, is if we spend all of our time and energy looking at the outer behavior, we will never look at the, the chemistry or the psychology within. And we're just, we are just wasting our time. Now, and, sorry, yeah. just to add on to that. Yeah. And that the person is lovable, right? Yes. Because of their intrinsic value. Because Amen. they've been loved by God. So if you can look at that, and come alongside them and be like, yeah, you're loved and we're gonna walk through this. When uh, we're looking at just behaviors, it's easy to other people. Yeah. Right? It's, easy, it's easy to put people in very different categories. Exactly. And of course, I'm in the way better category than, right. you know. Right. So when we look at behaviors, all I have to simply do is look at behaviors I don't struggle with or at least struggle with as much. Yeah. And I can demonize and other, other people. Yes. And Put, put ourselves in very, very different categories. Yes. But when we when we look at the core, again, this condition um, that scripture says is within all of us, well, now I'm in the same boat as that person. And it, it, it forces me, it demands uh, that I show that other person compassion. So what, what you're saying right now is one of the things I'm trying to give people, Christians a heads up on in this book. Um, I, I love what you just said, Tom, because um, I think I bring it up in this um, section of what the law should emphasize, uh, beginning on page 15. And um, now, now, just before I, I start to read just this little section here, I just want to remind everybody that uh, the law of God, you can look at hundreds of laws in the Old Testament that fall into different categories, be it the ceremonial law or sacrificial law, the moral law or the theocratic law, but there's literally hundreds of laws. Uh, but they're beautifully summarized in what most people are familiar with, at least many people say they're familiar with, I'm not sure how familiar they are with the Ten Commandments, but we should be familiar with the Ten Commandments as recorded in Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy 5. The two tables of the law, the first table, the first set describing our relationship with God, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Again, describing the child of God's relationship with their creator, with their Lord. The second table describes our relationship with our neighbors, with other people around us. Uh, by the way, this is beautifully summarized in Matthew 22, 37 to 39. 
Jesus states the greatest commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And the second commandment is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself in this horizontal plane. And those commandments in the second table are honor your father and your mother. My parents are um, in heaven, they have been for some time, but I, I rejoice in all the opportunities I have to this day to continue to honor what they passed down to me and what they taught me, uh, even though they're not here on earth anymore. Uh, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, uh, you shall not steal, you shall not misuse the name, pardon me, you shall not bear false testimony against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant, maidservant, his ox donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. That law is given, first of all, in terms of um, priority, what we refer to as the second use of the law, as has already been brought out by Tom and Megan, to convict us that we have somehow fallen short of these laws, not so that God would rub it in our face, but rather lovingly show us we have a problem. The tendency, however, is even for Christians sometimes to get on their high horse because we're still sinners and rub behavioral sins in the faces of other people. So at, at uh, page 15, uh, what the law should emphasize, the most important first step in engagement with law affirms that the sin problem needs to be exposed. But this is precisely why engagement is so important. What people say up front or what they seem to represent even before they say a word is often not the issue. It is not the core sin. I have a lot of children over the years when a problem came up, I would ask them what's wrong. I would often, tell me if this has ever happened to you guys. Um, I have a feeling that maybe it has. Uh, I'd ask them what's wrong. I'd often get one of two answers, either I don't know, or an answer that wasn't really the answer because they didn't even know what the problem was. Has that ever happened to you? <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> at this point, it's easy to waste a lot of time and energy as we address the answers that are only misdirections. What hardly ever happens is that we get the answers we immediately need to know so that we know what's really going on. Children and teenagers, however, aren't the only ones who do this. The law properly used gets at the core of the sin problem. If we expend our energy talking about the surface stuff, especially if we come off as moralists, legalists, or snobby judges, we will never be given the chance to engage about why all actual sins even exist. And, I, and, and this is really a huge point at the beginning of this book on engaging for the gospel, because we know the law is good and holy, Paul says as much in Romans 7, the law is good and holy. And we know that we are to be convicted of our sins. So isn't it my job as a Christian to really, really make sure that I hone in on those behavioral sins? You know, if, if I really want to help Tom out and love him, I should really focus on all the bad things he's doing so then I can properly warn him to get his act together and really be loving that way. Well, what happens is unfortunately because I am a sinner, I start, I start to feel in a really, really insane, crazy way, good about myself as I point out all the problems that you have. And I think this is why Jesus warns his disciples, is it Matthew 7, 
that before you take the speck out of your neighbor's eye, take the log out of your own. We're still sinners. And our problem is we too often become moralists while we're engaging people with the law. Um, so Ben, last week, I guess it was, uh, talked about like speaking the truth in love. Um, and I ended up having a conversation with one of my really good friends over the weekend. Um, and he was kind of talking about this idea where like his wife came home and she was really upset and he's thinking the whole time like, I don't know, I think she's kind of wrong. I think she's kind of blown this out of proportion. Mm -hmm. uh, but he took a moment to like step back and realize what the situation was. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that wasn't the most loving thing to bring up in that conversation at that point when his wife's mm -hmm. emotions are kind of heightened, right? Oh. But to then address that thing maybe later, right? And his wife had realized that in the second conversation. But that just gets to the idea that um, we can speak truth to people and not be, um, I guess, like excited about like our own morality or whatever we're bringing to the table in that situation and yeah. still get to the idea, the truth of it yeah. um, and do it compassionately. Yeah, we can speak that we're called to speak the truth in love, but we can also speak the truth not lovingly. Yeah. Yeah. Right. We can speak the truth and not be loving. Right. And yeah. again, how much is that then about my ego? Yeah. About being right. Yeah. And wanting to put that in somebody else's faces. You, you, you wrote on page 16 um, Christians who use law mourn the sin condition they share with those without Christ. Mm. But others use the law so that they can stroke their egos while pointing their fingers. And I love that language, who use the law, mourn the sin condition. Um, it, it was actually, I was talking to Ben earlier today about the book and the chapter and stuff, and he's not able to be here with us today. But in the conversation, it sparked this idea that it made me think of the example of AA. Mm -hmm. And when, when people go to AA, obviously they, they recognize some need, ideally, that, that there's an issue. Mm -hmm. But that issue oftentimes goes beyond just the behavior that they're, you know, exhibiting, mm -hmm. um, there's something deeper that they're struggling with. Mm -hmm. But who are they met with? Mm. They're met by people who are struggling with the same thing, mm. right? And so you, you think of an Alcoholics Anonymous group, mm -hmm. it's not about new members come up and then everybody else gets to sit there and point fingers and tell them how bad they are. Yeah. They, the posture is so different. Yeah. They're welcoming those people in, showing compassion and love and reaching out to them yeah. because they're dealing with the same thing. Yes. And when we were talking about that earlier today, that's a, the analogy that came up with, you know, the Christian, when we use the law rightly, we are mourning with them mm -hmm. and the condition that has led them to whatever behavior mm -hmm. that they're, they're caught in mm -hmm. because, man, I've been through the exact same thing. Maybe my behavior isn't exactly the same, but my conditions is the same. And that I think should humble us and take away that ego driven need to just point out everybody else's faults. Man, that, that is just awesome. I, I just I have some goosebumps just listening to you that, that so much brings out one of the most important things we can say today on this whole subject. And uh, recently studying King David as we're going through God's word in 2023 on, on another um, minister with uh, in Christ, we offer in Christ everyday devotions 
um, by the grace of God, 365 days a year. Uh, right now it's currently on Facebook, so I'm sorry if you don't have Facebook, but we're recently studying King David, and King David, um, he, he mourned um, the death of Saul, King Saul, who was trying to kill him. And even more, he, he mourned the death of his son Absalom, who was utterly and completely against his father David, wanted to kill David. Um, and and this, this now helps us to get to the crux of what we're trying to communicate here. Yes, we need the law to reveal sin, but we never do it in a way that we stand above someone, but rather we're in the boat with them face to face as an equal sinner. And um, you know, this, this is easy for me to say as I'm sitting here, but just think about everyone listening, think about your pet peeves, the things that make you most upset in other people. Maybe their politics, maybe their sexuality, right? You, you see where I'm going with this. And when we identify that thing that really, really bothers us about somebody else, it is so easy for us to start to behave as if, you know, even though I say that I'm, I'm the worst of sinners, and even though I say that I'm face-to-face -face with other sinners, now all of a sudden I've given myself permission to act like I can look down on somebody else. And, and when we go there, we have just forsaken engagement. I mean, we've just thrown it out the window at that point. So, so this is a major challenge for Christians in the world today. And, and so I, and, and I'm, gonna just, I, I'm just gonna bring this up because I think of many, many conversations I'm in. I think one of the things that I hear from Christians in, in, that are conservative Christians, evangelical Christians, who understand that um, what is going on with the LGBTQ community is wrong, however, it's sinful. However, when we start to talk about it, we start to find reasons to separate from other people in this issue. And the humongous problem in doing that, in getting back to what Jesus said in Matthew 7, before you take the speck out of your brother's eye, take the log out of your own, is that LGBTQ issues go under the heading or the subtitle of the sixth commandment in sexuality. And the moment you write, remind yourself of that, all of us should back up and evaluate ourselves on how we're doing regarding the sixth commandment. You know, and, and because if we do that, we're no longer only considering homosexuality. We're considering a whole range of issues, including lust in the heart. Say a person is not a homosexual, but if they're permitting and they are pursuing lust in the heart, especially if they're married, though you can still, under the heading of fornication before you're married or under the heading of adultery after you're married, if you are pursuing sexual lust, you are sinning in the face of God and towards your neighbor. If you are married and you've, you feel as though you've got sexual lust under control, but you're not honoring that aspect of the relationship for the sake of the needs of your spouse, guess what? You're sinning again. So we can keep going on all day long. And the point is that who's not guilty of breaking the sixth commandment? And that's just one, that's just one commandment. You know, we can keep going with all the other ones. 
And, and if we really soak this in, then how dare we get into situations of engagement where we start to act as if we're the superior to the person we're talking to? It just can't work that way. If we do, then the, we will be rightfully accused of being arrogant and pharisaical and completely uncaring and unloving. Why, why should I talk to you? Well, I think you, you talk with a lot of people who've rejected God, mm. Christianity, and so forth. There's a large percentage that will cite treatment by the church, um, how they were viewed, how they were, you know, experiences that they had. Um, you know, the stories are, and the list is way, way, way too long. Now, yeah. you know, again, to be fair, sometimes, you know, the, there is truth. And sometimes people, you know, don't want to hear that truth. I don't want to hear that truth. Yeah. I'd, I'd love to hear a very different message about myself than yeah. what I have, am forced to acknowledge. Yeah. Um, but they're right in how often the church has acted in ways that we're, you know, we're discussing here um, that has just driven people away and just said, I don't want to be a part of that at all. Yeah. Um, for, you know, either how they were treated or they feel like, well, I've already screwed up enough or too much, yeah. you know, I'm out, you know, all the different reasons, but a lot of hatred, a lot of bitter, bitterness, yeah. and unfortunately, deservedly so, you know, yeah. to, to, because of the way they've been treated. Absolutely. I, just a few nights ago, a couple nights ago on national news, um, I, I, I read my news, my wife listens to it on TV, but she, she, uh, chooses a, a pretty good presentation, I think. And, um, they had the news reports on the, um, uh, the Catholic priests in the Chicago area or Midwest area, and the number of uh, cases, and and uh, I, I just mourned. I, I just mourned w for what I heard. Um, but I want to be clear that what we're saying right now does not mean that therefore we are ignoring the actual sins. We're, we're not saying therefore we're ignoring the signs that show that people need Jesus. Um, we are not ignoring them. But, but I think in all of this conversation, what I am doing is that I'm bringing out a distinction regarding judging. And in one, in one sense, judging, Crino, this idea of judging, uh, to judge, it, is, it means simply to, to discern. It, it's to know what is right and what is wrong what is good and what is evil. We're under a God-given mandate and obligation to judge that that way. On the other hand, there is the judging that means to condemn. And it also includes this whole, this whole idea of, of, of Pharisaism, where we're looking down on someone else, treating them as being less than we are. So on the one hand, the Christian is to embrace judging, and on the other hand, the Christian is to avoid judging like the plague at the same time. Um, our inherent challenge, though, is that according to the old man, our sinful nature, we um, don't want to. We, we, we would rather, it, it feels good to look better than the other person. Um, but it's important that we do see the difference. And, and so I think this is a good point to bring this up. We learn from the example of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I'm going to take you now to John chapter 4. 
and this is, uh, this is approaching engagement, okay? And we're learning from Jesus. John chapter four, uh, this is beginning at verse one. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea. He went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down, sat, sat down by the well. It was about the six hours, like um, nine in the morning. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, so it's daylight, it's, it's light, uh, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? <laughs> I'm going to pause here for a second. Um, we're, the whole point that we're making is how Jesus teaches us how not to be obsessed about externals. And I, I didn't necessarily bring this out in the book. I, this, you know, there's only so many pages to write on. But anyway, it's almost as if Jesus puts himself in a position so that he wouldn't get caught up in externals by permitting himself to enter into kind of a, an external sticky point himself because he's a teacher and he's a Jewish teacher. He's a rabbi. And... A rabbi is not supposed to be alone with a woman. And so he's already going against the grain himself. He's putting himself in a position for other people to look at him regarding this external and possibly look down on him. But he proceeds. By the way, one of the things that makes me think of is in 1 Corinthians 10, uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 9, one of the things that Paul says, he says, to those outside the law, I become as though one outside the law. So, so those who live as if they have no law, they're kind of, you know, anything goes. I become like one of them. I, well, how does he do that? <laughs> and I think that Jesus is giving us an example of how that might be done a little bit, okay? Without actually committing sin, okay? When the Lord learned of this, uh, where, where was I? Oh, uh, okay, uh, verse seven. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Uh, he was actually um, committing two um, sociological sticky points from a Jewish perspective. One, as a, ra a rabbi speaking to a woman. Two, as a Jew speaking to a Samaritan. But he proceeded. His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? <laughs> for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well? and drank from it himself, as he did also his sons and his flocks and herds. And Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. I'm gonna pause here for a second because Jesus already knows 
everything this woman is about. He knows her morality. He knows her morality issues. He, he already knows because he's God in the flesh. He already knows the moral problems. But what do you think about, we'll come back to the text, but how do you think about the way he starts this whole conversation? He treats her as a human that goes beyond any action that she's done. You're a human being, you have value, and he shows interest and, and treats her with that value and that dignity and respect, um, ignoring and putting to pause all of the things that he could have just started wag wagging his finger at her about. I love that. Treats her as a human being who has value. I don't want to add to that one. <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty good, huh? <laughs> no, amen to that. Um, Jesus is not in a hurry to start digging into the actual sins. Uh, what he is in a hurry to is to just love her right away and to have a conversation. I, I remember years ago at a, at a chapel message at uh, our high school, the, the speaker, I don't remember anything about the message beyond this. It just, this part stood out. It was probably 20 years ago now, actually. Um, asked everybody in the gym to think about the worst thing they've ever done. The thing that caused them, causes them the most guilt and shame, even when they look back, even if it was years ago. And then said, how would you like it if everybody that ever saw you, met you, the first and then maybe only thing they would ever know about you or think about you would be that action that you committed, that thing that you did. How many, how many of us would like that? And his point was, aren't we more than just that? That is a reality. Again, we talked about I am a sinner, it's in my core, and it's gonna come out in, in, in ways. But aren't I more than just what I was in that one moment? We'd all like to think of ourselves that way. Doesn't that demand then that I try and see everybody else in the same light? They are more than just this one thing that they've done, or maybe this series of things that they've done. They are more than that. And um, that's, that is stuck in my brain, and I'm very grateful it has. Well, uh, you're, you're, uh, it, it, beautiful timing, I, I think what you says, perfect timing, but at the same time, and it's all good, uh, you've gotten ahead of us a little bit because uh, the thought for the Christian should be, this is someone for whom Jesus died and rose. This is someone Jesus loves and calls me to love. And that's the most important thing that I'm supposed to be thinking about towards anybody. Even that person that really, you know, um, you know, ignites my, my angst. Uh, this person I'm called to love. Um, I think it was last Ash Wednesday, I asked my, my parish, my people, my congregation to, um, I, I don't know when I did it, but it was, it was sometimes this past year maybe, to uh, see people with a, with a cross on their forehead um, as you encounter them and remember how we're called to treat them. The first point here is of three points on John chapter four, Jesus and the Samaritan woman on page 15. Number one, the Lord engaged the woman and found a way to keep the engagement flowing, the discussion, 
about water, both natural water and the water that Christ gives for eternal life. So he found a point of engagement. And uh, I love what we talked about last time um, with Ben. Uh, ben, we miss you. We do love you, Ben. Um, but I, I think it was Ben last time who brought up um, the idea of just kind of being aware of a, of a strategy, that we're not, you know, we're, we're not being fake about this as we just have this agenda or whatever. This is genuine. Jesus wants to talk to people. And, and he finds a way to engage sincerely to get closer to her. Okay, we pick it up at verse 15. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And he told her, here's the transition. Go, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, um, this would have been interesting to, you know, to be that person to hear something <laughs> like this. Uh, Jesus said to, said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. And I'm trying to imagine what was the tone of his voice? How did he say this? You know, the fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Wow. Um, we make the point here at number two on page 15, the Lord calls out her sins, her actual sin, right? Plural. With respect to her sexual immorality, her several husbands and current fornication. But thirdly, in the first part of number three, he did not, however, obsess about her sins. I mean, he's done. With what, what I just read, um, what I just read at verse 18, that's all he said. <laughs> that was it. He wasn't rubbing anything in her face, but he made it clear he knew. And he knew that she knew that it was a problem. But it wasn't like, now I've got you. Let me show you what I can tell you about this, you know, this lifestyle you're living, Right. Let me just pause there for a second before I read the last part of what he does. Any, any, uh, any comments, guys? Well, I, I think it just shows like when you're in relationship with people and you're actually valuing who they are, um, you can come to them and actually call things what they are. Um, because mm. you're still there. Yeah. After. Wow, wow, wow. Well, that's really great. I mean, last time, uh, if, if you guys saw our last podcast, um, we were talking about, yeah, you know, you can, hypothetically, you can engage anywhere, you know, and just someone you just meet as you're standing in the line, at, you know, to get on the bus or something. But isn't it, isn't it especially true that we're in a great position to engage when we've invested in relationships and, and they occur in everyday vocation? And the person already knows we care about them, right? So we, we have license to say a little more. I love that point, Megan. This, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just saying, it's yeah. like, it's the thing where, you know, nobody can make fun of our friend but us, right? Nobody can make fun of our brother but us. Yeah. That type of mentality. Yeah. Um, because of that, that relationship, yeah. I love that. And most uh, people yeah. don't, uh, sorry, I was just going to add to that. 
I think sometimes, sometimes Christians, we think that the reason why people are engaging in certain behaviors is because they've never heard it's wrong. All they need is somebody to come around and say, hey, you shouldn't do that, and that's just going to change everything. Mm -hmm. And something, I think sometimes by just the simple fact of people understanding what we believe in, what we stand for, the, the, the label we give ourselves, just to say, yeah, I'm a Christian, well, they, they probably already know or have an understanding that, oh, so you're probably against this, 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 that, right? They, they already know. So they don't need me to come around and say, well, I need to tell you this thing that, you know, you already know. Um, you know, meeting people out in public and, and telling people that I'm a, a Christian theology teacher, mm -hmm. uh, it's amazing how many times people have immediately started apologizing to me for the language <laughs> that they had been using for the last 10 minutes uh, in our conversation. And I'll, I, I didn't have to tell them, hey, yeah. you shouldn't use that language, whether or not, but whether or not I thought they should or shouldn't or it was bad or not. They've made an assumption mm -hmm. about me um, because of what I've stated, what I believe in, they know or think they know what's quote unquote right or wrong. So again, I think it's just, it, it belays the point that we, we don't have to sit there and again, continue to you know act like the only reason they're engaging behavior because they don't know or never heard anybody suggest that that behavior is wrong. Um, and so we, we don't need to keep pointing it out. And to that point our like usually when we're in relationship with people, um, you're like the other person oftentimes will start admitting the what they struggle with doing right and then in that point in that instance you can sit there and be like yeah you're broken i'm broken too let's work through that together that's beautiful that's beautiful i've been in situations too where um after the person finds out i'm a christian pastor uh they'll test me by increasing their immorality mm. in my face mm. Like, what are you going to do? How are you going to treat me now? And, uh, you know, that's about the time I, I break out with some Taekwondo. No, 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 I'm just, <laughs> just, just joking. This is Jesus's emphasis, uh, the rest of this account in John uh, 4. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they're the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. Jesus knew um, that they had said enough to establish what was wrong. That he knew it, she knew it, it was time to move on. And he leads the conversation in such a way as to get to the core of what the woman really needs. And what we all need is to know that, to, to know God so well that we can worship him in spirit and in truth. And furthermore, at the end, to be able to recognize who the Messiah Christ is, our Lord Jesus Christ. So I, I think he gives us this fabulous example of engagement of what should be emphasized. And uh, let me just make sure 
that we're saying it loud and clear here. The goal is to emphasize when it comes to the law, and remember the law reveals sin. And um, we're not saying that it's just a, a Lutheran, Lutheran formula. The Lutherans do say it a lot. I know I do, and, and Tom and Megan do as theology teachers at Orange Lutheran High School. But the scriptures say in Romans 3, verse 20, therefore, uh, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. So God himself has ordained that the law show us our sin. Our goal there, our goal, however, is not to harp on actual sins and list the behavioral issues so that we can tell people about how our morality is better than theirs. Our goal is to find a way to get to the core issue, the heart problem, and as I put in the book later on, also the head problem, that we have universally across the board that every human being on planet Earth who has ever lived, is living and will live, has a core sin problem. And it has a 100% mortality rate. It is the problem of all humanity. God wants us to know what his antidote, his answer and solution and gift is for us to deal with that issue. So our engagement is tailored in such a way is not to try to prove a point, to win an argument, to look better than the other person, but to be in relationship, loving that person. Uh, and what did you remind me about? Oh, to, to mourn the condition of sin. Um, and with that humility, pray the Holy Spirit would lead us to lovingly get to that core issue so that we can really talk about God's answer to that core issue. And that's where we wanna go, right? We wanna give the answer to the problem. We wanna give the solution, right? That's when the gospel becomes good news. Um, and I think when we get beyond the external behavior and we are able to get to the core and then we're able to share in that struggle, in that problem with somebody else, right? If, if, if we believe that those who do bad things should be punished, right, which I think is every human, right, we, we fundamentally believe this, right? We think that people who do evil should be punished. And then we recognize, well, wait, crap, I've done evil. I got a problem. That's when the solution becomes, um, we, we can start introducing the solution and why Jesus matters. and. Um, then hopefully that starts to sound like, you know, good news. Yeah. Like, why are you, why are you sitting with me in my sin? Right. Well, because I've been loved, right. <coughs> I'm sitting here loving you because I have been loved and then you can point back to Christ and what he's done. Um, and how you've seen Christ through the people around you. It's not because I'm better. Right. It's because I've received the solution to my problem and I want you to know that that same solution is yours. Amen. So you guys have provided the segue for us to now go to the gospel. So I'm going to read the conclusion of the law section and we'll get into the next uh, word or theme, which is the gospel. Uh, so this is page 17 and 18 as we lead up to the gospel. This is the conclusion of the law section. In other words, the law is not given primarily for us to nitpick 
for a pietistic, holier-than-thou, fault-finding mission, but the law is given rather to uncover the enormous hole that people live with that is sin in the most important sense of the word. A spiritual disease that permeates the whole being of a person, a problem so severe that it even separates us from God. Here, we remember that people are not sinful because they commit sins, but rather they commit sins because they are sinful. C.S. Lewis asserted, a re quote, a recovery of the old sense of sin is essential to Christianity. He mentions that in the problem of pain. Until this happens, we will be, a Lewis from the problem of pain, until this happens, we will be deceived by looking at the outside of things. That's Lewis. In another place, Lewis wrote, this is a great quotation. Love C.S. Lewis. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Just, just soak that in for a second. I mean, I, he just, I mean, what, what is it? I love C.S. Lewis and, um, you know, can't read Lewis enough. But, and, and by the way, I, I, I also love uh, Timothy Keller who died last week. A great loss, um, a great, great Christian, a 21st century apologist. Uh, love reading him too. I recommend Timothy Keller to you as well. But Philip Max Johnson sheds light on sins, plural, and sin, singular. So he, he is talking about the difference between behavioral sins on the one side and core sin on the other side. Quote, our sins, plural, are the concrete expression of our sin, singular. Our sins mark us as moral and spiritual failures and wrongdoers. Our sin, singular, marks us as enemies of God and destined for death. Sin, singular, as the theologians teach us, is a relational concept. Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Whereas sins, plural, is a behavioral term, unquote. So with that said, um, we are now in a position to understand that, yes, we are honoring God to employ his law as we approach people that we may be in a better position to get to the point of sharing the gospel. But when we do use the law, that always reveals sins, it is not for us to obsess about the sins, the behavioral sins, but rather get to the core issue or core problem of original sin or core sin, which is a 100% universally shared malady by all people, including us Christians, which is why we should take the attitude of being in the same boat with the person. As I was developing uh, the, the text in, in the process of writing uh, the books, I'll, I'll do a, an initial draft 
and I'll, I'll get it out there and have different people respond to it. It was, uh, it was Dr. Brett Taylor who teaches mathematics at Con Concordia University, Irvine. Just thinking maybe he wouldn't want me to say this, but I guess, I guess I'll have to take him Sorry. out for a sandwich. Sorry, out there. Sorry, Dr. Taylor. But uh, he actually said something magnificent when he heard, uh, he heard this section in a PowerPoint Bible study I was doing at St. Paul's Lutheran Church. He said, Pastor, he said, in, instead of encouraging us to get into the same boat, I think it would be better to say that we already are in the same boat. <laughs> and he's right. And I said, thank you. I, I said, um, you know, I, can I quote you there? And he says, well, go ahead. Just don't put my name in it. But now I've made up for it because he's now on the, on the podcast. <laughs> I have to get you a sandwich, Dr. Taylor. Anyway, um, why do I think sandwiches will solve all issues? I, it must, must be because I'm thinking about food. Um, anyway, so we're, we're getting to all this and, um, the, 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 the next section is, um, now getting to the gospel when a person is ready, when they know there's an issue, when they know they have that core problem revealed to them, they're, they're acknowledging it. They know it's there, uh, but they don't know what to do with it. This is where we come to the next theme or the next word and it's called gospel. So, when you think of gospel, what's the first thing that comes to your minds in terms of, I mean, we all know the, the basic answer. We can all quote John 3.16. But in terms of our cultural milieu today and how we express to people about the gospel, what are some things that you guys say or ways that you consider communicating this next theme? Oh, man. <laughs> Where do I begin? Um, The Bible talks a lot about peace and joy. Mm. And I think in our culture and as humans, we, we, we can define that a lot of different ways. Mm -hmm. um, the gospel is peace and joy. Uh, it's comfort. Mm -hmm. um, so if, you've, if you are receiving comfort, mm -hmm. you're, you're hearing the gospel. Um, and so those are... Um, you know, comfort in, in, in lieu of our distress, right? In lieu of the, the cold, harsh reality of who I am at my core, um, in lieu of all of that stuff, I have peace and I have comfort and I have joy. And those words refer directly to that discomfort that um, I feel because of, because of my sin. Um, and so, it's not in obviously circumstances of life and all of that, mm -hmm. um, which unfortunately is preached by people under the umbrella of Christian, mm -hmm. uh, that the peace and joy and happiness is all in life circumstances. Mm -hmm. um, but it's all knowing that despite who I am, despite my failures and my faults and my sins mm -hmm. and all the things I've done wrong, that again, guilt and shame, and I hope nobody ever finds out, God still loves me and I'm still his child and my eternity is secure. Um, and so, you know, when we feel that peace, that comfort, that joy, that's the gospel speaking to us. Yeah, I think you're kind of hitting on some of the ideas that I, I was thinking of. Um, so love and hope, right? Is this unconditional love that we've been promised, that we've mm -hmm. been given already, and the hope that we have in this life to come. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. Not necessarily like you're talking about the circumstances that we're going to be living in, but the future life that we're going to have um, mm -hmm. with Christ in eternity. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's good. Um, in in the prior book that we just finished for season one, A Faith That Sees Through the Culture, we have that one chapter on um, on Christian and, and what Christians know in the gospel in terms of, uh, you know, we, we compared it to a diamond that has several facets. And one of the facets of the gospel is, um, I, I forget the order, but we talk about, um, you know, like expiation, that, you know, uh, in the eyes of God, our, our sins are expunged, they're, they're wiped out. Uh, propitiation, uh, where God puts the punishment and the wrath that we deserve for our sins, not on us, but upon his son who takes it for us. Uh, justification, that on account of Christ, God declares us righteous. These are all facets of the diamond. We talk about reconciliation. We are now, once separated from God, we are now united with God. Redemption, we have been bought back to God through the blood of the lamb. And as a result, result we have passed over from death to life. Um, atonement, our sins are now covered uh, by the blood of the Lamb. We talked about all these words in the last book. Um, but in writing this book, Faith That Engages the Culture, where, um, remember when we were talking about, what was the last podcast we were talking about um, how important it is to know the what so that we can go on to express the how? Well, the inherent challenge there, and I agree with that statement, by the way, but the inherent challenge at the same time is that as we are now uh, sharing the what, we are dealing with a culture that is largely biblically illiterate. So um, a lot of the things that we might speak in Christianese to another Christian is something that's gonna bounce off the person that has never you know, been in a church before. So I was asking myself the question that when I look at the gospel and I think about possibly sharing it with somebody who doesn't have a church background or a Christian background, what is something that they could relate to as being invaluable right out of the chute? Um, so what I'm emphasizing here is that one of the great themes of the gospel in God's word is the gift of life that never ends that is eternal. Um, and so I, I, give some, I give some scriptures here. Um, Paul emphasizes the gospel uh, in knowing, the gospel, by the way, that word, uh, in Galeon, uh, is a word that means uh, good news, uh, glad tidings. Um, it is um, kind of from the, the field of meaning um, back in the day, relates to, um, a militaristic announcement of victory that has been won so that now we won't be taken over by our enemies and have our heads put on a stake. Um, I think I just topped you on a gross description. <laughs> I, I really didn't have to say all of that, but um, that's much worse than mentioning. Uh, anyway, let's just move on. So, so we're not going to be slaughtered by our enemies anymore. We're not going to be consumed by sin, death, and the power of the enemy. Now, victory has been won through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who interestingly enough, is sometimes depicted in the scriptures as a warrior. Um, in, 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 in the book of Revelation, he's on a white horse. Uh, this is at the end of Revelation, not to be confused with the white horse at the beginning of Revelation, because it's two different white horses. But the end of Revelation, he is the one, and on his thigh is written King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and he's leading the heavenly hosts. 
it's the second time I'm getting goosebumps. You caused it the first time. Um, anyway, so he leads in battle to claim to defeat your sin, which leads to death, to defeat death by rising from the grave, to defeat the devil who tries to destroy you by crushing his head when he died on the cross of Calvary. And when he conquered his worst, um, his worst weapon against us, which was death, when he rose again, and as he protects us from the devil's deception, because he's been cast out of heaven, he is now bound, but he still tries to lie to us and to distract us, to divert our eyes off of Christ. So even now Jesus is praying for you, and he, he prays for all of his children, and he leads us and protects us that our faith may be preserved and blessed in this world. And all of this is happening, why? to give you real life. So uh, Megan and Tom, this is what I have on page 18 and 19. It's important to steer away from making this a religious thing that somehow strays from real life. Much to the contrary, the gospel addresses the heart of what is important to all people. Simply said, the single greatest instinct, desire and drive in the hearts of human beings is to live. No matter what drives people or what people say to define themselves, people, all people embrace life. Even people despairing of life, despairing because their life has been severely hurt and who may be, I didn't put this in the book, uh, who may be even be contemplating taking their lives. They yearn for a better life. They too want to live in fullness and joy. Even a person who says they want to die <clears throat> is really crying out that they desire that their life be unimpaired, be it physically, emotionally, or spiritually. The bottom line is that we want to live. We want life while sensing that life can be or ought to be good. We desire life not just for 70 or 80 years or even 120 years, but life that doesn't stop. The Socratic resignation, death is a part of life as a rationalization. And deep down, it is entirely unsatisfactory. Once a person tastes the gift of life, they don't want it to end. God knows this. He created us for life, and he desires that we may enjoy it literally forever. God has done something about our great yearning. He has given us the gospel. And I'll, I'll end with uh, two verses, uh, and then I'll take your comments, Megan and, and Tom. John 10.10, 10, this is Jesus. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And this is 1 John 5, 11 to 12. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in, this, in his son. Whoever has the son has life. What do you think? Yeah, I, um, I think it's important to remember this idea of uh, like the tabernacle, right? So God dwelling among his people. Um, and then Christ coming and living among his people um, so that we can live, right? Yeah. And be that, that same thing for, for others with, um, with the spirit living um, through us and us. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think of how much in, in life we're, we're lacking and, and 
when, when Jesus talks so often, I, I give you, you know, life and life to the fullest. I'm giving you living water uh, that will, you know, never end the, the bread from heaven. You know, you know, eat of this and you will never, you know, this is, we're, we're short in this life, right? Our life is short. You hear this all the time, religious and non-religious view, right? Like life is short, make the most of it, yada, yada, yada. We're, we realize that we're, we're not full and we're lacking. Mm. And Jesus comes along and says, you won't lack. You, 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 will, you will have everything. Mm-hmm. You won't have to fear death. You won't have to fear loneliness and abandonment. You won't have to fear needing anything. Um, your wants will be forever met. Your, your needs will be forever met. It's, um, it's a thing that I find that he, he offers to people um, as he talks to them, you know, this, this life eternal, um, and, uh, you know, again, ultimate peace and joy and confidence and security and all these things that we, we don't have, we get glimpses of here on earth, but we know it's ending. And here he comes along and offers a life that with, without any of the struggle, um, and a life that will never end. And, um, you know, at our, at our core, um, what can be, I guess, what can be better than that? Yeah. And, and to, to think that, you know, sometimes when we start talking about this, we go, oh, of course, you know, your, your Christians are going to go there and, you know, pie in the sky, you know, it's heaven. And we get these really weird images, you know, we're in a choir uniform for the rest of eternity singing in the heavenly choir harp in hand and the heart. Right. And, uh, you know, we just can't wait. We're just so excited for this image can't um, wait to play a harp. Right. I- exactly. And I, I think that this is where we can get lost in what's really exciting about where, when Jesus is saying life. So I love Christian art and I have this, uh, Thomas Kincaid, Tr- Tracy and I, my wife and I have this Thomas Kincaid painting and, uh, it's a painting of, of heaven, uh, taken from the, granted the apocalyptic literature of the book of revelation but john is describing at the end of revelation this beautiful picture of the new heaven and the new earth and what thomas kincaid did um before he he died um uh, he he did this depiction of the scene in the book of revelation and it's jesus and and peter walking through heaven through this beautiful garden scene with lush uh, greenery and trees and sky and river and flowers. And it's just a gorgeous place. And it reminds me when I see this, that what we're experiencing here on earth in, in, in having real bodies, the ability to touch and to hug our loved ones and to eat good food and to walk around and to relate and to laugh and to leap and to run and to have things around us. That's what we're going to get on steroids, if you will, or infinitely better. Um, It is that we're getting a glimpse that God understands what life is all about. And it's not some ethereal, cloudy, ambiguous um, thing in heaven somewhere far away. It's a real life. And Jesus shows us that he's serious about this because as you guys know, three days, as all Christians confess, three days after he died and was put into the tomb, he came out of that tomb. And he was, um, 
he was strong, he was vibrant, um, and the disciples were able to, to touch him. And so this is the life that God offers, this life that continues um, in uh, the Lord. Um, I'm, I, I'm having um, all of a sudden uh, memory loss here. Um, uh, Luther's uh, motto in, in, the, um, in the Psalms, Luther's motto, um, I shall not die, but I shall live. Uh, this was, this was uh, his motto. Does anybody remember that? If, if you can't remember, I'm going to ask, what's the motto with you? Can I make it up? <laughs> I don't know. What do you think? Do you, have a, do you have a guess? No, I have no idea. We've got it right here. I highlighted it um, on In Christ recently. It's Psalm 118, verse 17. 118, verse 17. This was Luther's motto as he went through life. 118, verse 17, I will not die, but live and will proclaim what the Lord has done. And we put this as part of our, um, our funeral liturgy in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. As the pastor is leading the casket, there are certain proclamations the pastor, pastor makes as he's leading the casket. And one of them is Luther's motto, Psalm 118, verse 17, I will not die, but live and will proclaim what the Lord has done. That's what the gospel gives right there. And this is something that uh, we know everyone considers to be invaluable. And this is what we're telling people about. So, um, you know, last time, guys, uh, as we were wrapping up, I said, uh, even on the pod, well, the podcast was still rolling, that we might even get into another chapter today. When, Foolish man that I am. When will you ever learn? <laughs> Tom saying, Pastor, <laughs> when will you learn? Um, but we, we look forward now to the next chapter. And I'll just say the next chapter, singular, which is engagements people one-on-one. -on -one. We're going to talk more about this idea of uh, the importance of um, the people that we're talking to. And, um, and so um, we will wrap it up with that today. And we are thrilled that you joined us, everyone. Uh, remember that this podcast is being put on several uh, podcast platforms, including Amazon and Spotify, uh, YouTube, and Brad, what am I missing? Apple, Apple, Google, you'll find all of it. And um, we are just doing this because we love, um, we love doing this. We love the Lord. We love you uh, for joining us. We want to be servants of God. This is a reflection of the, of the mission at St. Paul's Lutheran Church of Irvine. Um, I'm sitting here with three other members of the congregation. This is the Lord's ministry at St. Paul's. It's our ministry. Glad you've joined us. Please tell your friends about Light of the World, and we hope to see you next time.